The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It was unusual to see Reggie Bush looking nervous. This was the same young man who confidently and methodically destroyed defenses across the country in front of millions of people every Saturday. But tonight was more important than any football game he'd ever played. Tonight was the 2005 Heisman Trophy Ceremony, the most prestigious award in college football. A pregnant silence fell over the room as the host prepared to announce the winner. He looked out over the crowd and said, In the future, whenever your name is mentioned in any athletic context, it will be accompanied by the descriptive phrase, Heisman Trophy winner. Then he paused for dramatic effect. But everyone watching already knew whose name was going to be called. They'd known since the first game of the season. The host continued, the winner of the 2005 Heisman Memorial Trophy, Reggie Bush. It was official. Reggie Bush was the best college football player in the country. And according to the host, no one could take that honor away from him. But years later, Reggie Bush would become the subject of an NCAA ethics investigation. To some, he became a villain and a pariah to others, a scapegoat, and the first and only player to ever return his Heisman Trophy. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
This week, we're diving into the USC Trojans' transformation from mediocre football program to magnificent powerhouse under head coach Pete Carroll and star running back Reggie Bush. We'll examine the controversial and legally nebulous world of NCAA recruiting and how it specifically impacted the Trojan football program. Next week, we'll follow the Trojans at the pinnacle of their success and their downfall. We'll explore what mistakes led to NCAA sanctions and how Reggie Bush became the only athlete in history to return his Heisman Trophy. In 2005, Reggie Bush won the Heisman Award by one of the largest voting margins in history. As running back for the USC Trojans, he'd led the team to two national championships and an active 34-game win streak. By any measure, Reggie Bush's Trojans were one of college football's great dynasties. The week after the Heisman ceremony, USC was set to play the University of Texas in the BCS National Championship game. If they beat the Longhorns, it would cement the Trojans' legacy as the greatest, the only team in history to win three national titles in a row. But years later, Reggie Bush's tenure as a Trojan would be remembered as the lowest point in the team's history. His legacy as a Heisman-winning champion was completely overshadowed by scandal. Reggie Bush grew up about 130 miles south of USC. His biological father was only 20 when Reggie was born and claimed he was not ready for the responsibilities of parenthood. So as an infant, Reggie was largely raised by his mother, Denise, and later his stepfather, Lamar Griffin. Both worked long hours as security guards to give Reggie a better life. They instilled within Reggie the values of hard work, dedication, and modesty. They also introduced a love of sports, especially football. In Reggie's first Pop Warner football game, he ran for seven touchdowns and almost 300 yards. To say he was gifted was an understatement. And as his talent blossomed, Reggie became almost singularly devoted to the game. His work ethic, in particular, set him apart. In fact, several of Reggie's early coaches were shocked at how hard Reggie pushed himself on the field. Some actually told him to slow down. They worried he would burn himself out, get injured, or simply grow to resent the game. But as he got older, Reggie's focus, dedication, and drive only grew more intense. In high school, he was a full-fledged star. By his senior year in 2002, he was listed as the number one high school running back in the nation. As a result, he was on the radar of every Division I school. But like most star athletes from California, Reggie Bush wanted to remain in state. He'd grown up watching USC Trojans football. So where he chose to commit was a foregone conclusion. Dating back to 1888, the University of Southern California is one of the oldest college football programs in the United States. But it wasn't until the 1960s, under head coach John McKay, that the team became a national powerhouse. During McKay's tenure from 1960 to 1975, the team produced two Heisman Trophy winners and won four national championships. However, by the mid-1990s, the Trojans began a swift descent into mediocrity. In fact, the team's record of 37 and 35 from 1996 to 2001 was their second worst over any five-year span in history. 
But in 2001, USC hired an NFL journeyman named Pete Carroll to turn the program around. After an uninspired career as a professional coach, Carroll had a lot to prove in his new position. Handsome and fit, with a full head of silver hair, Carroll looked like he came right out of central casting. Perfect for Hollywood-adjacent USC. But Carroll's good looks belied an odd, abrasive personality. He possessed a confident demeanor, but an awkward, halting way of speaking. His charming smile and general smugness seemed designed to hide the fact that he was an odd, goofy guy with tenuous social skills. And as a mediocre NFL coach, his arrogance and pompous attitude rubbed many people the wrong way. But it made him a perfect fit at USC, a school with a polarizing reputation of its own. USC is a gorgeous, nature-filled oasis in the middle of Los Angeles. It boasts world-renowned programs in art, music, and film, and top business and medical school programs. Its picturesque campus, celebrity alumni, and top-rate academics make it one of the most elite schools in the country. But to its many detractors, USC is often referred to as the University of Spoiled Children. Unlike the vast majority of athletic powerhouses, USC is a private school. Not only that, it's one of the 10 most expensive schools in the country. And while the perceived image of USC might conjure up glamour, sunshine, and Hollywood, the campus is actually located in a completely unglamorous part of the city. It sits, bordered by freeways, in a semi-industrial stretch between downtown and South LA. Furthermore, the campus is enclosed by large metal gates that wall off the students from the surrounding low-income community, another characteristic that distinguishes it from most public universities, which play an integral part of the towns and cities directly around them. So, to some, the University of Southern California is a national landmark, but to most, it's a symbol of exclusion and elitism. Within his walled-off campus, Carroll's life became consumed by football. He concluded that he hadn't taken enough of an engaged, hands-on approach with his players in the NFL. So the moment he stepped foot on campus at USC, he vowed to reshape the football program in this new image. He discovered that he was a natural mentor and learned how to nurture every ounce of talent from his players. But that close attention appeared to stop once his athletes walked off the field and were left to their own devices. While it was impossible for Pete Carroll to monitor his players' every move, years later he would be harshly criticized for not taking a more active role in their non-football lives. This perception of Carroll became even stronger when compared to the legacy of John Wooden just a few miles away. By almost any metric, John Wooden was the greatest college basketball coach who ever lived, possibly the finest coach in any sport. During his career as head coach of the UCLA Bruins, Wooden led the team to a 664 and 162 record, an 88-game win streak, and 10 national championships. But what endeared him most to his players, his fans, and even his few detractors, was his mentorship of players on and off the court. Wooden took it upon himself to improve his players' well-being, not just their play. But most importantly, and unusually, he held himself personally accountable for their actions and behavior. He taught them that they not only represented themselves, but also their Bruin teammates, their school, and Wooden himself. 
famous Bruin alumni Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton, among many others, credit John Wooden as being the man who mentored and shaped them into conscientious, happy, and successful adults. But while Wooden focused on building his players' character, Carroll focused on building his roster. He possessed an extraordinary eye for scouting young talent, yet identifying players was only half the battle. Carroll also excelled at attracting them to his program. After all, Carroll was no longer a middling NFL coach standing timidly on the sidelines. His hands-on, high-energy coaching style was an immediate hit with players and fans. He was effusive with praise, and his excitement and work ethic were infectious. And once the 2002 season began, the Trojans became one of the greatest college football teams to ever play. The most unorthodox element of Carroll's program was his open sideline policy. Most football teams hold closed practices, meaning only players and team personnel are allowed on the field. But once the Trojans began winning and Los Angeles fans jumped on the bandwagon, many wanted to see the team up close, including celebrities. Sensing the thrill it would give his players, Carroll allowed Snoop Dogg and Will Ferrell to become honorary members of his staff. This decision not only reinforced the school's Hollywood mystique, it attracted additional celebrities, reporters, and members of the media. At which point, every USC practice became the best party in LA. And what potential recruit wouldn't want to play in that environment? When it was Reggie Bush's turn to have his pick of schools in 2003, USC was the natural choice. Unfortunately, Pete Carroll's innovative recruiting and open sideline attracted more than the best players in the nation. It also drew in overzealous boosters, opportunistic hangers-on, and heat-seeking dirtbags looking for a quick buck, two of whom, through a tenuous connection to Reggie Bush, would threaten to bring down the entire football program. Coming up, we'll explore the controversial practice of recruiting, and how Pete Carroll used it to his advantage to turn the Trojans into a dynasty. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Now back to the story. By the early 2000s, Pete Carroll had managed to transform the Trojan football program from mediocre has-beens to one of the most dominant and relevant college teams in the nation. In the 2002-2003 season, USC went 11-2. Clearly, Carroll knew how to win. With the addition of his star recruit, Reggie Bush, the following year, Carroll's Trojans would go from a winning team to a dynasty. Carroll's recruiting prowess translated into an absolutely stacked roster. But the process of recruiting is a lot more complicated than just inviting Snoop Dogg to football practice. It involves researching, scouting, and courting the best high school players across the country. Recruiting is competitive, cutthroat, and some coaches will use any means necessary to gain an advantage. There are strict rules when it comes to recruiting, governed by the NCAA. But by and large, these rules are ignored or circumvented, and have been since recruiting became commonplace. The main problem that the NCAA faces in monitoring the recruitment process is that there are simply too many student-athletes and no way to keep track of them. Many top recruits are invited to visit schools for a weekend in order to get a sense of campus life. This gives the schools an excuse to house those recruits with a current player. But this is where the schools take advantage of the process. It's the job of the current player to show the recruit a good time, ostensibly to reflect what life would be like at that particular school. But these visits are meticulously planned and coordinated to seduce teenage recruits by giving them an experience completely outside the realm of normal college life. They're taken out to dinners, to parties, and more. All schools engage in this practice. It's one of the NCAA's many unspoken rules. Between 2010 and 2014, the University of Louisville basketball program took it one step further by hiring sex workers to literally seduce potential recruits. In this case, the NCAA caught wind and stepped in. But as we said, athletic programs go to all kinds of lengths to recruit the top players. These days, the recruitment process begins as early as eighth grade. Before a kid even hits puberty, he or she may have scouts attending practices or games. At an age when most kids are thrilled to receive their first skateboard, a star athlete begins receiving letters of interest from college coaches. This behavior not only warps a child's development, but it turns sports into their primary focus rather than their education. It's a systematically dysfunctional process, and it only gets worse in college. But the problem isn't just with colleges. Brands like Nike and Under Armour have started sponsoring high school sports teams to try and preemptively capitalize on young athletes' potential. For these brands, new uniforms and shoes are a small price to pay for the publicity a young star prospect can generate. While still in high school at St. Vincent St. Mary in Akron, Ohio, LeBron James was already being christened the next Michael Jordan. As a 16-year-old, he had the size, strength, and skill of most NBA players, and it was clear that James was a once-in-a-generation talent. 
Sensing an opportunity, Adidas and Nike began courting him for a sponsorship. Millions of basketball fans wanted to see what James would do next, so his high school games were nationally televised. And in each of those games, whichever company's shoes James wore got millions of dollars in free advertising. Which brings us to one of the most hypocritical aspects of the NCAA. The NCAA's cardinal rule is that its athletes are amateurs and that their athletic career comes second to their education. To be eligible for collegiate play, an athlete has to protect his or her amateur status, no matter the cost, meaning that they can't accept money or gifts in any form, whether it's a million dollars or a hamburger. The universities and apparel companies, however, have no limit to how much they can profit off an athlete's fame or likeness. This is even more unfair when you consider the top dollar reality of college sports. For most schools, the majority of their revenue is earned through athletic programs. Ticket sales, branded merchandise, broadcasting rights, advertising placements, well, the revenue is absolutely staggering. And it's not just the schools, the NCAA benefits as well. The most recent contract for the broadcast rights to the March Madness playoff tournament generated $19.6 billion for the so-called nonprofit. When asked to comment on this breathtaking windfall, the NCAA claimed that more than 90% of the revenue generated from this contract will be used to benefit college athletes through programs, services, or direct distribution to member conferences and schools. But what does that redistribution actually entail? For the schools generating the most money, that revenue goes directly back into their athletic programs. Sometimes it's in the form of a coach's salary, like the $9.3 million Clemson paid Dabo Sweeney in 2019. Or it's the addition of a locker room barbershop, like the one commissioned by the Kansas Jayhawks. The one specific place the money does not go is into the athletes' bank accounts. Because, according to the NCAA, they're amateurs who aren't allowed to get paid. And if that's really the case, they're the hardest working amateurs on earth. Despite what the NCAA would have the public believe, for a star athlete at a Division I school, athletics is the primary focus, not academics. For one thing, an athlete simply does not have the same amount of time to devote to his or her studies as an ordinary student. Most of their energy is spent practicing, traveling, or playing games. That's why academic scandals involving athletes are so prevalent. The most egregious in recent memory took place at the University of North Carolina. Over an 18-year period, the school offered a shadow curriculum for athletes. This was a coordinated effort between academic and athletic departments to offer fake classes designed specifically for high-performing athletes. The classes required students to write one single paper the entire semester and had no attendance policy. It was a way to pretend that student-athletes were still getting an education without burdening them with the actual work of academics. The NCAA maintains that an athlete's education is the primary focus of his or her college career, but these classes were created for the sole purpose of maintaining athletes' eligibility to play sports. Worst of all, the NCAA declined to prosecute the University of North Carolina once the shadow curriculum was exposed. 
It was determined that non-athletes also participated, and therefore, they were unable to prove that the courses were created solely for athletes. That was their only threshold for punishment. The reality is that playing sports is these students' jobs. That's why they were recruited. The same way that studying is the job of a student who has an academic scholarship. The difference is that a student on an academic scholarship probably doesn't have a full-time training and practice schedule. Also, that student probably wasn't aggressively recruited. It's unlikely that the chair of the music department at UC Santa Barbara spends their weekends flying across the country to recruit cello prodigies, and the reason is simple. There's no money in it. But again, this payday only extends to the school. While many college football and basketball players, especially young men and women of color, receive athletic scholarships, most of these only cover tuition. The students are responsible for living expenses, rent, and books. In fact, student-athletes are often expected to work a job in order to earn pocket money. This seems logical in theory, until you consider that a student-athlete, especially one on a championship team, barely has time to go to class, let alone practice, travel, and study. How could they add a job on top of that? And if you're a literal superstar in the national spotlight, a household name generating millions of dollars for your school, the idea of working a part-time job waiting tables or reshelving books at the library for $10 an hour seems ludicrous and also impossible. This hypocrisy is what makes student athletes, especially low-income athletes, vulnerable to bribes and under-the-table deals. They're putting their sport ahead of everything else in their life, their studies, their health, their relationships, because it's the only thing they've focused on since eighth grade. So if someone offers them a crumb in the midst of all that punishing dedication, they're going to take it. And the NCAA knows this. Almost every Division I school has some kind of recruitment cheating scandal to its name because the circumstances are so rife for it. But they only choose to make an example out of a few select cases. And for USC and Reggie Bush, when they reached the pinnacle of success, the NCAA decided to make an example out of them. Coming up, we'll explore Reggie Bush's dominant Heisman winning season. Now, back to the story. By the beginning of the 2003 football season, USC was a polarizing school with a polarizing coach, Pete Carroll. But they basked in their controversial reputation because they were winners for the first time in a long time. But that hubris was eventually their downfall. September 27, 2003 was an uncharacteristically warm afternoon in Berkeley, California. Perfect weather for the Cal Bears to host the visiting USC Trojans. The Bears were unranked, but led by quarterback and future NFL superstar Aaron Rodgers. And as the marijuana smoke settled over the stadium, as it always did on game day, the Trojans were expected to coast to an easy victory. But minutes into the first quarter, the Bears took an early lead. USC answered with a touchdown of their own, but by halftime, the Bears were leading 21-7. As the fourth quarter wound down, the game was tied at 21. Then Cal's kicker nailed a 51-yard field goal, a distance that'd be tough for most professional kickers. It put the Bears ahead by three. 
It appeared that USC was destined for their first loss to the lowly bears of UC Berkeley, a school more famous for its free speech movement and hippie antics of the early 1960s. But on their final possession, with just 22 seconds remaining, Matt Leiner drove the Trojans downfield. USC hit a 33-yard field goal to tie the game and send it into overtime. They'd survived by the skin of their teeth. The score still tied, they went into double overtime. Both teams scored points in the second overtime, sending the game into triple overtime. Exhausted, each team headed back onto the field to try and secure a victory. As Matt Leiner took his first snap, it was clear that his body was cramping and shutting down. USC managed to square up for a field goal, only to miss wide right. The Bears needed only a field goal to win. And two plays later, their kicker, whose last two attempts were blocked, squared up and nailed a 38-yard boot to give the Bears a stunning upset victory. Pete Carroll lamented, it was very disappointing. When you're on a streak, you get to thinking losing will never happen to you, but it can. Too many things got away from us. The loss to Cal was USC's only one that season. They went undefeated in the remainder of their games and finished the year ranked number one. But shockingly, they were shut out of the national championship game. Instead, they were scheduled to play Michigan in the Rose Bowl. Needless to say, the Trojans clobbered Michigan. Because of the rules governing college bowl games at the time, they were forced to share the number one ranking with Louisiana State University making each team a co-national champion. Well, even among the football fans who hated USC, this decision was wildly unpopular. Eventually, the NCAA changed the college football championship to a playoff format among the top four teams to allow for more competition. But this change didn't happen for a few years. And in the wake of the 2003 season, being forced to split the co-national championship title with LSU, the Trojans were determined not to share 2004's top spot with anybody. Pete Carroll and the Trojans roared through the 2004 season like men possessed. Though they faced a relatively easy schedule, their margin of victory in every game demonstrated just how unstoppable they had become. They beat Colorado State 49 to nothing. Arizona 49 to 9, and their hated rivals, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, 41 to 10. They carried this dominance all the way to the BCS National Championship game, where they blew out the Oklahoma Sooners 55 to 19. This was also the season that quarterback Matt Leinert came into his own, passing for 3,300 yards, 33 touchdowns, and winning the Heisman Trophy in the process. Pete Carroll and the Trojans were on top of the world. At the time, Los Angeles didn't have a professional football team, so the Trojans filled the void. And the Trojans were champions, celebrities in a city where fame is currency. But while they enjoyed the spoils of their fame and success, they didn't have someone like John Wooden looking out for their best interests off the field. Any college student, even one who isn't a star athlete, is going to make a bad decision or two. It's part of being a kid. The human brain isn't fully developed until age 25, so with all the temptation faced by college students, mistakes come with the territory. But if you magnify the opportunity for mistakes by a thousand, that's about where you'd find the USC Trojans in 2004. 
They were young kids worshipped by an entire city, lacking the mature decision-making abilities of an adult. Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush in particular enjoyed celebrity status. Everybody knew they were destined for NFL careers and lucrative contracts. Still, Bush and Leinart were both responsible, hard-working young men. They kept their noses clean and their egos in check. But while Bush and Leinart naturally kept out of trouble, well, that didn't mean they were protected. Eventually, trouble found them. Both these young men represented millions of dollars in the future. Someone was going to capitalize on it, even if Leinart and Bush technically couldn't do it themselves. Long before each and every celebrity was the face of a lifestyle brand, athletes were the only figures with endorsement deals. Most of the top college athletes, especially in football and basketball, signed lucrative endorsement contracts the moment they turned pro. These deals are also lucrative for the agents representing these athletes, since an agent can earn up to a 20% commission. By decree of the NCAA, college players aren't allowed to have an agent, and there are strict rules against agents even communicating with these athletes. But, much like recruitment restrictions, the rules are easy to circumvent. In most cases, an associate of the agent will approach a college player and offer gifts or cash if that athlete agrees to sign with the agent once he or she turns pro. And no matter how smart or responsible an athlete may be, at some point he or she will be approached with some kind of tempting offer. With that much money on the table, it's inevitable. And USC's open sideline policy made Pete Carroll's players more vulnerable to this kind of attention, especially Reggie Bush. As a dominant, hardworking, likable running back, he was the perfect candidate to become the face of a shoe or apparel company. Part of his appeal was the fact that he portrayed a responsible, humble image. After all, this was the same Reggie Bush whose coaches thought he worked too hard. He certainly wouldn't do anything to jeopardize his career. Which is why two fledgling sports marketing agents named Michael Michaels and Lloyd Lake chose to approach Reggie Bush's parents instead. In fact, Lake had come into contact with Bush's stepfather, Lamar Griffin, years before, but it wasn't until Lake saw a financial opportunity that he decided to rekindle the friendship. Even though their son was a national celebrity, Bush's parents still worked blue-collar jobs, and Lake thought he could make them an offer they couldn't refuse. If Bush promised to sign with them once he turned pro. By the start of the 2005 season, Denise and Lamar Griffin's son was arguably the best player in college football. USC was coming off two consecutive national championship wins and a 22-game winning streak. Matt Leinart had won the Heisman Trophy, and Pete Carroll had proven to himself and others that he was one of the best coaches in the game. But this season, USC wanted to prove that they were the best of all time. They wanted to become the first team ever to win three consecutive national titles. The Trojans jumped off to a 5-0 start against less than stiff competition, including a 70-17 victory over Arkansas. This extended their win streak to 27 games. 
But against their biggest rivals, ninth-ranked Notre Dame, the Trojans found themselves in an unfamiliar position. With just two minutes to go in the fourth quarter, the Trojans trailed Notre Dame by three points. 81,000 fans filled Notre Dame Stadium, and all of them wanted to see the Fighting Irish put a stop to USC's nose-thumbing streak. USC had one last shot. Starting on their own 24-yard line, Matt Leinert threw an incomplete pass on first down. On second down, he was sacked for a loss of 10 yards. On third down, he passed to Reggie Bush for a 15-yard gain. If they didn't pick up a first down on the next play, the game was over. On fourth down, Heisman winner Matthew Leinart dropped back in the pocket and lobbed a pass downfield between the outstretched arms of two defenders. Dwayne Jarrett caught the ball over his shoulder and ran for a 61-yard gain until he was finally tackled at Notre Dame's 13-yard line. Two plays later, he handed it off to Reggie Bush, who ran for another first down. It was now first and goal with 23 seconds remaining. On the following play, Matt Leinart received the snap, rolled to his left, faked a pass, then ran toward the end zone. Just before the goal line, he tried to jump over a Notre Dame defender, but he hit Leinart, causing him to spin around in midair and knock the ball out of bounds. On the field, no one seemed to know the outcome of the play. The referees didn't signal anything at all, so the clock ran down to zero. Thinking they'd won, several Notre Dame fans rushed the field. It took several minutes for the referees to restore order and announce their call. They spotted the ball at the one-yard line and put seven seconds on the clock. USC had time for one more play. Matt Leinart took the snap and tried to run it in himself. First, he rolled to his left, across the backs of his offensive linemen, then took another few steps to catch his balance. In the meantime, Reggie Bush came from behind and pushed his quarterback over the goal line, handing USC a last-second victory over Notre Dame. Even though there's a specific rule in college football against a teammate helping another to gain forward progress, not involving blocking, the referees didn't seem to notice. USC kept their win streak alive, and the play was even dubbed the Bush Push. USC breezed through the rest of the regular season, defeating UCLA 66-19 in their final game. Then, Reggie Bush, in the midst of his greatest college season, was awarded the 2005 Heisman Trophy. Bush beat out his teammate Matt Leinart and Texas Longhorns quarterback Vince Young by the second largest margin of victory in Heisman voting history at the time. USC now had the chance to go undefeated in two straight seasons and win an unprecedented three consecutive championships. But there was another undefeated team that year, Vince Young's Texas Longhorns. And now, the USC Trojans and the Texas Longhorns would face each other in a highly anticipated BCS National Championship game. Before a minute of football was played, it was already dubbed the game of the century. Both teams were undefeated, and the game would mark the first time the two Heisman winners from the same team would play in a game. If USC defeated Texas, They would surely go down as the best team in the history of college football. The stage was set for the greatest college football game ever played. But behind the scenes, events that Reggie Bush had no knowledge of were already in motion. 
events that would rob him of everything he'd worked for his entire life. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Reggie Bush's USC saga. We'll explore how a tenuous financial engagement brought down an entire football dynasty. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 